Welcome to our journey. Our journey toward a more perfect union. Our more perfect union is an experiment, a grand experiment in something we all cherish, democracy. Welcome to our Radio Roundtable with higher education consultant, Dr. Michael Walker-Jones, Harvard's Executive Director for Health and Human Rights, Dr. Natalie Alinos, and from Beacon Hill, Representative Jeff Roy, as we the people celebrate the journey of America toward a more perfect union. Welcome to a more perfect union. I'm Nick Remesong. Joining me this week from our radio roundtable of regulars, uh, we have our representative on Beacon Hill, Mr. Jeffrey Roy, Representative Jeff Roy. We also have a guest this morning, Ted McIntyre, who is president of the Massachusetts Climate Action Network and has been very active in uh, certain legislation that uh, has put um, Mr. Roy squarely in the lead for our annual Hero of the Week Award. Last week, we introduced the topic of clean energy in Massachusetts and across the country. How is it impacting on us? How is it impacting on the world? And we are, again, Ted McIntyre is very, very well versed in this and has worked uh, kind of in the background with uh, Representative Jeff Roy on the new bill that was just signed by the governor a couple of weeks ago uh, for impacting climate change in the state of Massachusetts. And we're going to resume that discussion today. If I could, I wanted to go back to Natalia with with a sort of a question, because I think what you're touching on is there's a whole lot of what's called environmental justice. So there are in, unintended consequences of everything we do, right? And the idea that, I mean, in this particular case, if say Brookline only, you know, bans natural gas, that somehow that's going to isolate other communities that don't have the means to get off natural gas, that's an issue. I, I think I wanted to ask Natalia, I mean, in terms of public health, I mean, there's Everybody gets sick if they're exposed to benzene from the natural gas in their stove. Certain communities, as Nick mentioned, have it much worse, right? So there's this moral imperative there to recognize that. But then there's like internal, internal to your home from burning fossil fuels. There's living in a neighborhood. And then there's like tropical diseases that are wandering around, right? Which when you say the implications for for public health from, say, the bill we have in Massachusetts or generally what's going on. What's the first thing that comes to your mind? So, Ted, that's a great point because it's everything. So in terms of the outdoor air pollution, clearly it's the public transportation piece. You don't want cars idling in front of you know young kids, etc. The indoor air pollution is something that I think the public health community has more recently come to understand. And globally, interestingly, there was a push to move towards gas because what people were doing globally places like in India and across, you know, other continents was big fires, like where the smoke was quite intense. So, you know, women would spend hours collecting wood, come home, heat the house with, you know, solid, you know, wood fires and breathing in that sort of fumes was really, really deadly. So there was a push from a public health community to move to gas. Now we know that gas is harmful. So the next level is, can we 
globally jump over that, go directly from you know wood to sort of renewables, and in countries like the United States or Greece, move to an electric um, you know option um, with the hopes that our electric grid will be green soon enough. So we're sort of thinking both for today and the future. So from the pollution perspective, that is what causes the most direct harm. So the WHO tells you that you know millions of people globally are dying because of pollution. The other indirect or direct impacts of climate change that you mentioned, for example, the zoonotic diseases, the fact that we have monkeypox and COVID and Zika, all of these are linked to the way that our environment is linked to human health, right? As we uh, encroach into um, you know, the sort of the world, either it's because of you know, climate change, meaning for, you know, we might have dengue or other mosquito-borne illnesses in places that we've never had them before because now the conditions have changed. So there's the, the temperature impact. Water and sanitation globally is also a big one with climate change that we're worried about, you know, whether our, our water will be uh, good enough. So it depends on where you are in the world. Climate change is going to impact your health in different ways. Uh, but I think you're right about the environmental justice piece. Anywhere you are, in the wealthiest country or the poorest country, there will be inequities. People have who have the means find the ways to protect themselves, and people who don't end up having to migrate, having to leave if there's a drought or if there's you know a hurricane, you know, dying at greater numbers. So the equity piece is so central. And and Jeff, I was really happy to hear that you're thinking about equity because the unintended consequences, you don't want to simply solve the climate problem or the environmental harms for the wealthy. We have to be thinking about everybody. So I'm really glad that, that was on top of your mind. Well, the, there are a lot of environmental justice components uh, to the bill. And um, I'll, I'll speak briefly about what we did with the offshore wind industry. We know we're building a new industry in Massachusetts in offshore wind. And we know we're going to need to train a workforce uh, to be a part of this. So part of what we're requiring bidders who are going to come in and bid to be the major players in this space, we're requiring diversity, equity, and inclusion to be part of their bid. We are uh, requiring a, uh, a DEI program director to be established who will oversee this because we want everyone to be able to participate in this new industry. We want everybody to be able to benefit from the energy that uh, wind will provide, but we also want people to benefit from the jobs and the businesses that will be created. And, uh, and having uh, DEI uh, program coordinator, coordinator overseeing this is important. And I will share with you that uh, the importance of this was driven home to me uh, by my recent trip to Denmark uh, and uh, the folks that I was with on that trip from the Alliance for Business Leadership in the Boston area were stressing the importance of inclusion in this industry and just drove it home during our discussions at dinners and the bus rides and also seeing what, uh, what took place uh, in that country and how that industry really transformed uh, Denmark uh, into a major player. Uh, and, you know, like you see the beautiful turbines uh, out your window today in Greece, I was amazed at how beautiful the uh, turbine array was in the bay in Copenhagen. I said, this is just 
uh, a peaceful thing uh, to look at. And it was absolutely stunning uh, yeah, to can see I jump it in from, on that for, for one second. I remember yeah. years ago now going to a presentation. Um, I think it was a URI, but basically the, 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 there's sort of this artistic, one of the professors was talking about the aesthetics of renewable energy stuff. And he like, he said that people in the Midwest love their grain silos. They're iconic people just, you know, and it's because it represents the work of the community, the continuity of the community, right? Everything good is tied up in that grain silo and that makes it beautiful. And I think what's happening now is that the same things happening with wind turbines. They represent the future optimism, you know, uh, good stuff for your kids. And that's why it's in every stupid commercial from Goldman Sachs and uh, Exxon, Exxon, you know, they got a wind turbine in the background. And I think that shift is happening from, you know, in the early 2000s when, when, you know, Teddy Kennedy was afraid the wind turbines were going to ruin his view from, from his resort in Cape Cod. Now we see these things as aesthetically very appealing. And I think that's something we ought you know, once you become conscious of it, you see it everywhere. But it is true. There's a shift in the way people think about it. And I can only hope that that's a, in fact, this guy was, I remember he was proposing, you know, to get artists out there to paint patterns on the wind blades so that you would have artistic things going on that people like. So I'm not, it hasn't happened yet, but. Well, we, we can follow that, the, uh, we can follow the old Soviet uh, uh, blueprint for that. And we can have the poets writing poems about the beauty of the turbine because it is it's a it's an amazing thing to watch those spin and what impresses me the most initially was how in the world do you put one of those together they're massive where do you get the crane for that where do you get people who are going to shinny up that is that what it does talk to representative jeff roy well (laughs) uh, you know something uh nick you raise an incredible point so uh, during these discussions, we were considering what port in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts could host these massive turbines and blades. Some of these turbines are, are 500 feet high. Okay. And uh, so, you know, we we're down uh, at Brayton Point, which is in Somerset. To get to Brayton Point, you have to go under the Narragansett Bridge. Can't do it there. Uh, go to New Bedford. New Bedford has a hurricane wall. There's an opening to get into the uh, the port, but it's not large enough for one of these Jones Act vessels, which is carrying these massive pieces, to come in uh, through the hurricane wall. And lo and behold, who who um, emerges from the pack? But the port of Salem. And Salem has a deep water port, which can accommodate these large vessels. And uh, we plan to invest substantial amount of money into that port to uh, bring it to life, to be a host. So uh, geographically, it's a little far away from uh, the uh, turbines 14 miles south of Martha's Vineyard, but it's geographically located perfect for what they want to do in the Gulf of Maine. So uh, the trade-off is okay. We'll, uh, Salem will be perfect. And let me talk a, a little bit about the poetry of Salem. I know in past shows I've talked about the poetry of putting a manufacturing facility at Brayton Point where the last coal-fired 
plant stood. But Salem also had a coal-fired plant right on its port, mm -hmm. which was replaced by a natural gas, a highly efficient natural gas power plant. But that power plant is only gets a 50-year license. So that natural gas power plant will go out of business in 2050. By 2050, the port of Salem will be transformed into an offshore wind port of national scale. And to see that transformation of what's going to happen for that city is incredible. And the same thing with New Bedford. New Bedford's not going to take the Jones Act vessels in, but it's going to have a substantial uh, amount of activity for offshore wind. And it's going to be, you know, 100 years ago, um, New Bedford was the city that provided light through whale oil. And 100 years later, it's going to come back to life as the city that's providing a major uh, anchor for offshore wind uh, in Massachusetts and the United States, the eastern seaboard. That'd be great. That'd be very easy to put diambic pentameter. No problem. <laughs> I, was, I was just going to jump in and say, uh, when I was a kid, they were building that hurricane dike in New Bedford, right? And it is, it's, it's quite interesting. It, it, in many ways, it cut off parts of the city from the waterfront, right? For this protection once in a while from a, from a hurricane. Um, but I guess number one, talking about, you know, timescales, I mean, that hurricane dike is going to be there 2000 years from now, right? I mean, it's going to be like a Roman ruin, right? And, and it, it speaks to the permanence of the kind of things that we are, are doing and thinking about. But and then I just say one more plug is that I've walked out to that little gate in New Bedford Harbor where the boats cannot get through. It seems entirely possible that we could widen that gate to make it as wide as we needed it to be if we, uh, if we wanted New Bedford to be a port. But that's it. That's an aside. Uh, it's just that the you know, these things that we do have consequence for long term, I think like the, the this stuff is going to be around for, for many, many years. The decisions we're making now, our grandchildren and our great grandchildren will be living with. And yeah, Jeff, I I was gonna people, I'm going to be 89 in 2050. So Natalia, you and your kids are going to enjoy this a lot. More. We're, we're going to enjoy it. And but, you know, speaking about like what the future holds, and I'm so glad you mentioned DEI in the in the jobs. An area that I hadn't thought about until I, I ran for Congress was how women are going to be trained and brought into this new technology. Like the future of, you know, women are already not represented in STEM and a lot of these kind of energy in the energy field. But if this is really a promising new future, I don't know, is there something around inclusion and ensuring that there's a gender equity piece that you've thought about, Jeff? Or if you haven't, I'd love to plug it in because I do think we're not, you know, we haven't made it yet. Uh, a, a sort of a, a gender inclusive industry. And I would love for the green energy future to be as inclusive as it can be in that sense too. And that will all fall under the DEI provisions of, of the bill. And it's certainly something that was central to our thinking and certainly something that was uh, driven home to me by the several women who were on the Denmark trip. So, um, I can assure you it's a big part. And uh, if you see it slipping in any way, you know my number. Well, and that, that brings me to the point. The, the study I uh, mentioned going on at GW and what, what they're publishing out of there is driven almost exclusively 
by women in within the departments that are working together to do this. So the the fact that we have to talk in this day and age about including women shows that you know knuckleheads like myself weren't thinking very well when we were much younger and uh we still uh we we still apologize for that and i'll apologize for everyone over the age of 60 that's male and look look looks like me so you can take that to heart natalia <laughs> i know that that makes your day much better no if i have a, a slightly different question we haven't touched on it much here but <clears throat> You may have noticed that there was an, uh, there was a different another bill passed down in Washington recently that sort of speaks to some of the same issues, and I think the question I have is, you know, it's it's all new, right? I mean, who can? It's a seven hundred page bill. There's a lot of stuff in it, but I, I'm interested in what interaction there is between the wonderful bill that we passed in Massachusetts and what now becomes available uh, from the federal the uh, Inflation Reduction Act. I mean, it seemed I've seen things that say uh, every state's queued up now to go do something because there's money. And of course, we're way ahead of the curve. Uh, do you see any opportunities in the in the federal bill? Absolutely. When you're talking three hundred and seventy billion dollars that they plan on spending on climate resiliency, they're looking for shovel ready projects and Massachusetts is so well poised to take advantage of that because we've done all this work in advance. Um, you know, EV charging infrastructure is a huge component of the bill we just passed at the state level. Well, it happens to be an area that the federal government wants to spend a lot of money on. Offshore wind is an area that Massachusetts has invested heavily in. And it just so happens that the federal government wants to spend a lot of money and offer a lot of tax incentives for folks who want to get in the offshore wind industry. It's incredible the parallels between what we did at the state level and what was done at the federal level. And you know that was also an argument that was used uh, when we were trying to persuade the governor to sign this bill, said, how can you pass up this opportunity to get this tremendous level of federal funding. And one of his reservations, in addition to the fossil fuel bans, was that we did not put enough money in our bill to fund these pieces. And uh, if any of you saw the remarks that I gave on the House floor, I covered that very aspect. I said, uh, this is a policy bill that we are working on. We have a transportation bill that we did. We had a budget that, that we passed. And uh, we had other pieces of legislation that had money in them, an economic development bill that's still in the works as we speak today. We will fund these programs through these other vehicles. And in addition, we have funding coming from the federal government. So let's not worry about that. We've got our, we've got our bases covered and uh, it's incredible how far ahead of the curve we are uh, in relation to the other 49 states uh, in the United States. And also keep in mind the climate czar uh, happens to be Gina McCarthy from Massachusetts. Uh, the other climate czar happens to be John Kerry from Massachusetts. So, you know, and one of the leading senators on climate uh, oh, issues yeah. is yeah. Ed Markey, happens mm -hmm. to be from Massachusetts. They see what we're doing. 
uh, and they want to bring this home to Massachusetts. Well, I, I, so I think it's interesting, Jeff, that there's there's a, a, there's sort of a resonance there. I mean, McCarthy, Markey, I mean, they see what the state's doing, right? And that is allowed, you know, to, to have a vision for the federal level. We're speaking with Ted McIntyre, who is the president and board member of the Massachusetts Climate Action Network. But I, I wanted to pose a slightly different question, both uh, Natalia and Jeff and everybody. But I mean, I was sitting thinking, we have this enormous federal bill. We have this enormous state bill, like passed at the same time. Like, how, what a coincidence is that, right? So you start looking for adjectives and you say, oh, historic, landmark, watershed, turning Constellation of the stars. Or, or So my, my, the question is, how do you think, I mean, what is the societal shift, shall we say, that all of a sudden allows these things to be real? And I guess I was parsing through, man, I'm thinking this is a milestone because we're on the roadmap, right? It's a watershed because it's, everyone's, you know, I think with the federal bill, every state is going to start to think differently. And the oil industry is going to become more and more isolated just because there's new ways of thinking, right? And I think the final thing is, is this a climax right now to climate work or is it the prologue for all the additional stuff we need to keep plugging away so i mean this, this what, is a what, prologue. Do you think, how why did this happen i mean this is this is a prologue because we have a lot of lot more work to do but people are seeing droughts they're seeing wildfires they're seeing horrible climate events um you know i'm i'm a big nonfiction reader but i chose my first novel uh, in a long time to read this summer, and it's called The Displacements, which is a novel about Miami and Southern Florida being hit by a um, hurricane that displaced all of the population from Southern Florida. So um, I'm moving into the novel uh, realm, but it's, uh, it's you know, what, what we're seeing is an identification that climate change is real. It's having an impact. I mean, all you need to do is drive around Franklin and look at all the brown lawns, and you can see that uh, you know something's going on, and 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 people are now beginning to realize that it's not a hoax, although there are still some out there that do believe it's a hoax, and uh, uh, but that number is dwindling, thankfully. And people are taking it seriously, and they want people in their government thinking about this. And you know, another provision that uh, I'll slide in from the bill is that uh, we have a, a commission looking at how our schools and our school building authorities can incorporate, uh, you know, net zero thinking into uh, the prospects for future uh, development of schools and retrofitting. Uh, of schools. And, you know, it, it's amazing. I walk my dog around uh, Franklin High School. That's on our pathway. And I walk through there and I say, boy, this this building is just short of 10 years old. And I see this enormous natural gas-fired generator out behind the school. And I say, boy, when we were building this school and the architects were doing it, we really, we weren't thinking forward enough to have put the solar panels on the roof 
and thought of geothermal technology as a way to energize this building. But today, those, uh, those discussions are taking place. I taught a school in Cambridge, which has 300 geothermal wells, solar panels on every exposed space of the exterior of the building. It's a net zero uh, school building for 3,000 students. Incredible where uh, the direction we're heading in. And I, I've been driving an electric car since 2012, and uh, they're becoming uh, more uh, widespread. Uh, Ford, I think, is the master of it. Mm -hmm. uh, they, they rolled out the Mustang as its electric vehicle and the Ford F-150. Brilliant marketing strategy. Get uh, folks into uh, electric vehicles that uh, are moderately priced. They're not, uh, you know, they're not cheap, but they're not in the class of a, a Tesla or a Lucid or one of those, you know, uh, six-figure uh, vehicles. But we're seeing a sea shift in attitude, and that's uh, that's why we're finally being successful. And it's folks like you, Ted, who have been at this for over 20 years. And Bill McKibben, uh, who's been out there for uh, you know a generation, pushing people to think about these things. And uh, I'm glad that we're finally there. Natalia, what, 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 is it milestone or watershed? <laughs> What's your take? I, I mean, I hope, I hope it's just a milestone. I don't think it's enough to, I mean, in the sense that I hope that we're just at the beginning and that we're, you know, we're seeing, as Jeff said, a shift in norms in what people want. And I love the idea of, you know, the climate movement being really the only movement I know that is truly intergenerational, that you have, you know, you, young activists, the 11 and 12 year olds on the streets with people in their 60s, 70s, 80s. Um, it's been, you know, for me sort of watching kind of the, the energy of the youth and kind of pushing has been really important. Although I do worry, and I should say this from a public health perspective, this term that I, you know, have come across, which is eco-anxiety, and it's a true mental health challenge that some young people in the, you know, 16, 17, who typically would feel anxious about, you know, what college to go to or what to study or leaving home are saying that they are most anxious about the future in terms of the climate that we're leaving behind. And, you know, the anger and the, that is true. It's true. We are, we have messed up. And, you know, so sort of the mental health impact for me is, is one that we need to also think about when we're thinking about, you know, public health and climate change. But I do think that, yeah, you know, norms have changed. The expectations are that politicians, you know, will, you know, it's, it's how green will you go, not whether you are going to be putting forward green policies, how you're going to address things like a just transition in terms of jobs. You know, there are still questions and there is industry. And I think, you know, again, I want to make an analogy with public health. You know, the tobacco industry, for example, is very powerful and it has been a pariah. You know, people just say, you know, we do not touch tobacco money. We do not talk to tobacco. I don't think fossil fuel industry is as much a pariah yet, but I think we're moving that direction where people are like, well, you know, you know the really fossil fuel industry uh, is moving in the direction of at least an offshore wind. I mean, Shell Oil is one of the major uh, investors in offshore wind uh, off the uh, coast of Massachusetts. And uh, those folks see the writing on the wall and uh, they're moving uh, into that area. Yeah, it's better, it's better be ahead of the curve. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I do want to share to, to... one thing with you um, because, you know, the work to me uh, has been has been heartwarming. 
And I, I just want to share an email I got from a, a gentleman who's an activist who's been uh, following this work. Um, uh, he's from the North Shore, but uh, he keeps in touch with me every now and then. But he he sent me this email um, the other day, and it just moved me that I, I want to share it to you. It says, Dear Representative Roy, thank you ever so much for your leadership in moving the various climate proposals into law. It is pr pretty clear to all the activists I know that you were the key leader in the success of the act driving clean energy and offshore wind. This is the line that got me though. You have done a good deed for people who will never know you or what you have done for them, but we know. Thank you. And he's a grandfather and uh, just touched me that yeah. uh, that you can have an impact on people uh, through policymaking. I think, Jeff, I think that is, you, you, you've brought up poetry several times, but that is a poetic notion, right? That the actions we take today are going to go forward and affect other people in ways we don't understand. And I, I guess you know, that comes back to this whole issue of, I mean, climate work can be pretty dismal sometimes, right? Because things are so much stacked against you. And the idea that you don't really know the consequences of what you do. You try and do the right thing. And you could be shocked by who picks up the, who, who follows that lead. And I think that's a, that's a, I mean, there's, I, I tell me, uh, uh, Jeff and Natalia, what do you see as the next thing? We've, we've hinted here, right? This is all, I mean, unfortunately we painted ourselves into a corner where right? like nothing is enough. There is no, no thing that we can do that is sufficient to the, uh, to, but I mean, where do we see, especially given this, the federal work. I mean, how do we see this going forward? What do you worry about next? I would, I, I think, Jeff, you've touched several times, I mean, the whole issue of retrofitting existing buildings, the million buildings that we need to go from the health perspective and the energy, I mean, there's so many things. Again, not that, number one, we should take it, we should as Climate activists should take a victory lap and celebrate, right? Take a take a you know a deep sigh, say, "Man, this was a good thing." But are you always come back like, "What's coming next?" Um, do you see things in, in the future that you say, "Gee, this would be the next logical um, thing to do?" I mean, I have been, Natalie. I have yeah. some thoughts, but you go first. I mean, I think the way we live, like you know, some a big difference. You know, I grew up in Greece, and a big difference between. Greece and the U.S. is sort of this ideal of living in a huge house with a huge garden with kind of four cars for, you know, two adults. Like that was the American dream, possibly. I don't know. You can correct me if that's wrong. But, you know, kind of I live in an apartment, a three bedroom, one and a half bath. We have one car. Uh, we have you know, no garden, but we have a public park nearby and we are so happy. And it's not like I don't strive to like move into it. Like that works so well. And I have three children, you know, so it's just kind of, I, you know, I wonder if that's the future, a smaller footprint because you have a smaller house, you know, people are starting to eat more vegetarian meals. I use public transit always. Um, the others know, you might not know this, Ted. I actually don't know how to drive. I have said I, I turned 40 and I have said I will learn how to drive because, you know, now the kids are have soccer and activities and then the public transit network is just not good enough. You know, mm -hmm. if there was a bus to take my kids to soccer, 
Um, or if there were really safe bike lanes that I wouldn't feel insecure, you know, riding bikes with them, I would. So I do think the future is that uh, a livable city where people have smaller homes, more public communal spaces. You don't need to have your own yard, you know, with grass that you have to water all the time, but you can have really good public parks that are accessible to everyone where public transportation is, is free or very affordable and, and common. I mean, that's kind of the, the future that I, I hope for. Um, and uh, one a, that I think, a mixed yeah. multi-use neighborhood, neighborhoods yeah. being mixed multi-use where you can walk to what you need. Yeah. And you have me humming uh, Graham Nash. Our house is a very, very, very fine house with two cats in the yard. <laughs> exactly. so hard. I mean, I think uh, that's I, a, it's a fascinating link up between like, because there's this debate in the climate movement of a personal choice versus systemic change. And I think what Natalia is touching on is sort of this into, you know, you need to choose to live smaller, but at the same time, systemically, we need to offer the opportunities to do it. So it, it's exactly. both at the same time, right? Designed. Yeah, our, our space, our urban planners need to make it easy and accessible. And it's about urban planning. It's about our, our public transportation. The one thing, Ted, that I have a hard time with, and I'd love your advice, is, is I got on an airplane to come to Greece, and I don't want to not be able to travel. But, you know, how do we how do we think about air travel? That is, to me, the biggest, hey, like, I, you know, the guilt. Cape Air is going to electric planes. We're speaking with Ted McIntyre, who's the president and board member of Massachusetts Climate Action Network. Well, so, it, uh, it, it, I, one of the things, coming. Natalia, one of the things I did was to, I, back in, I, I had the same question, right? I looked and there are, the oligarchs have yachts, right? So I looked at one of the Russian oligarchs that got seized. That yacht can go 50 knots over the water, Okay. So that's like two and a half times a cruise ship. So you say, okay, I'm going to power that with hydrogen and I'm going to have floating wind turbines all the way across the Pacific uh, generating hydrogen at way stations. And I'm going to have these boats that go 50 knots and get you from LA to Singapore in a week. Right. And I, I keep coming back to this thing because I have flown multiple times to Asia Pacific, China. You know, you, the job I have is like you're going to work in the morning, five o'clock in the afternoon, you're on a plane to Korea. Right. Do we really need that? Right. Is the is the ultimate, you know, would the sun stop coming up if you couldn't get to Beijing in 10 hours? I submit no. Business would continue. We would find a way around it. So a lot of air travel is in the age of Zoom is gonna go away, right? But then you need to find other, it's like the book, Jeff, you were talking about a novel. I read uh, The Ministry for the Future, right? Where there's this long scene where she, the, the protagonist goes from Munich to San Francisco by boat and train and, and how wonderful it is because she's working the whole time on her, uh, so anyway, yes, you're quite right. The whole question of where's the airline industry going and how how do we live in that future world in a green way is really interesting. And the maybe other that piece that um, we should take into consideration beyond that very important issue that Natalia Rose, uh, Rose raised uh, is waste management. And what are we doing with all of our plastics, and uh, bottles and uh, trash. Um, you know, we need that is, I think, the next big major hurdle 
that we have to overcome is how do we uh, administer all of this waste and can we reduce a lot of this waste? Uh, so those are, those are some pieces that are on the horizon. I've, I've seen, Jeff, the, the, the we talked about, uh, I forget which oil company making wind turbines, but they are also cleverly switching the natural gas production from heating homes into the precursor chemicals for plastics. And that is almost as bad as a coal plant. So now they're going to build 25 equivalent coal plants to manufacture one use plastic. So you can take your, uh, you know, your uh, ice cream home from the, from the supermarket in five seconds and use that bag once. So your thing about reducing, I absolutely is the direction. Just, you got to stop making the plastic because it's. Well, I think we also have to be looking at, well, what are we going to do? There, there is going to be waste. Solar panels don't last forever. There are the batteries that we're looking at uh, do need mining to bring them up out of the ground and they're going to wear out. I mean, you hear the horror stories. Oh, my, you know, my hybrid car, the, the battery went dead and now I've got to pay $13,000 for a battery. I mean, that, that it, it's, you know, it, it's the usual reaction that you get, but, but there is going to be waste. So we should be, be setting uh, something that says, okay, you can go to this, but you're going to have to come up prior to going big with this on how you're going to handle the waste. It, well, and, and just, uh, I, I don't mean to, but you're absolutely right. We need to design for recycling. And part of the thing, so Jeff, let me put in a plug. I saw a thing that said the automobile industry, when it goes to electric batteries, we need to have a common design so that all the batteries are more easily recycled instead of having Mr. Uh, Musk make a battery that is incompatible with the Ford battery and they can't be recycled. You have to design from the beginning the processes to recapture that. And Nick, I mean, you're right. Talk about environmental justice. There are screaming issues around where are we going to get the lithium and where are we going to get the cobalt? And that demands that we find ways to reuse the stuff we have. Right. So again, you could go on. That's what makes this business so interesting. There's so many nooks and crannies in, uh, that you can go down. I think it's also a good idea to point out that what we really have is, is not only moving targets, but moving technology. And the issue is also going to be incumbent upon the legislature to assist in any way that it can to keep up. A good example, for instance, right now, electric cars, you know, as Jeff pointed out, he's been driving one now for a decade. And are we at first generation? No, but it is still early in the game. By the way, Jeff, when you mentioned the fact that uh, Cape Air was going to electric planes, the very first electric plane to fly was out of Worcester Airport. And that was uh, about 20 years ago, 15, 20 years ago, there was an experimental plane a Cessna that actually took off from Worcester purely under battery power. So we've come a long way since. In that light, knowing that technology moves and progresses as we, as we wish, consider the electric car of the future. And this is part of my job when I was in corporate was, what's the next generation? What's the next generation look like? I think one of the th hallmarks of the next generation is going to be a more intimate relationship with the household. Households who have garages for electric cars, that's not everyone, but if you do, you will simply roll your electric car into the household. You won't connect it. It will be connected. In other words, 
there will be an intimate relationship between the car and the house where you don't have to worry about hooking it up. There will be a standard way to hook it up. Right now, there's not. But the other thing, we've already seen this in truck design, where the car, the truck, the SUV, whatever you have, will serve as an alternate power source for the house when times uh, warrant it. When you need a power generator as a backup, your car or cars can do that. And I expect that we will probably see movement in that direction within the next five years. It will come quickly. Pete, I would, if I could again jump in, I, mean, I would just say the, the future of the electric vehicle is going to be an electric bike, right? And because that would be a much more, you know, uh, familiar way to to get around town. But one of the things, so I did a, a bunch of podcasts on uh, extraction of lithium, right, in Nevada, right? And I was just struck by the, one of the protesters there at the camp. I mean, he came back and made me think, he said, you know what, you do not deserve, you do not have a right to an electric vehicle, right? There is no 11th commandment that says every American gets to drive an EV. It's a choice that we make, which then imposes burdens on either the Atacama Plateau in Chile or, you know, that, and so the question, and this goes back to what Natalia was saying, it's like living smaller in a way that doesn't require an electric vehicle is perhaps the best future of the electric vehicle, right? And then and you're talking about, I think it was the, the Ford F-150, you took the lithium out of a Ford F-150 battery, you can make 25 bicycles, right? Mm -hmm. And so what's the right way? And I and I don't I don't say that to oppose what we're doing with electric vehicles, but to sort of broaden the conversation to say, do you deserve an electric vehicle? Do you have a right to it? What is the way that as a society we move forward together in 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 preserving what we've got? That makes sense. It does. Uh, and and by the way, there are existing examples of if now I was commuting every 90 days to Japan in my past life, working on a large project, both here at home and there. And so I'm sort of familiar with the density of Tokyo and other large Japanese cities. Um, and it's palpable. You feel that when you go there, the dimensions of buildings are different. Uh, how the space is utilized is different because the population is so dense, yet the cities are also comparatively cleaner. Everything has a, a good feel to it in terms of its efficiency. They take nothing for granted in terms of how they utilize both space and energy. We have a long way to go on a lot of fronts, but it's interesting interesting stuff to think about. It is. It also is. too, uh, there are new developments that have only recently come to light, people exploring things. Ted, as you mentioned about the idea of using massive fall weights as electrical storage, raising it up and then lowering it when you need peak power demand. Um, geothermal also plays an interesting role there where people are looking at the idea of heat charging sand. Sand is cheap, it's plentiful, it's everywhere. Nature manufactures it spontaneously. And so when you look at the idea of using sand as a heat base, you can heat it up to 500 degrees. And if you do that, you can extract that heat and recreate electricity. So I don't know how efficient it is, but it's kind of fascinating to note that all of these explorations are going on in terms of where do we park energy until we actually need it. Yeah, and I think that's a, a big part. As you say, park it. Can we can we hold on to this indefinitely? Does it have a 
a lifetime, you know, half-life, whatever. And what are we going to do? Where are we going to park it? And what, what impact is that going to have? So everything falls all the way down. You start with it. The, the big idea and all of a sudden, okay, what's this? Where's this going to go? How are we going to use this? What's it going to cost? What's it going to do to us? Well, I will say, I think this was uh, quite an amazing uh, show, uh, quite energizing for me. And yes, mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. is indeed intended. And uh, I was so thrilled that we could, uh, you know, have this discussion, thrilled that Natalia uh, was able to join us from Greece yeah. and show us the lovely uh, turbines uh, out her window. And well, we we and, are becoming uh, international. You. We had you from Denmark, and now we that's right. Had Natalia from Greece. That's so, right. Uh, I forgot. I did do the show. Pete, you'll Denmark. you'll be you'll be coming to us from Ottawa soon. Something of that sort, perhaps. Maybe you'll <laughs> send me to Ottawa. I don't know. I'll go to Ottawa. Uh, well, and in, in in line with that uh, kind of wrap up, I think we might want to call it a day. We've had a, an amazing discussion can i and, just throw yeah. in one more nod real quickly oh, you, you do please solar power I, I think at the zip code level we as franklinites ought to give a nod to the fact that there's been an awful lot of work done over the last decade well with mount saint mary's abbey uh you know kearsage ended up developing a couple of projects with them there was a solar one for 3.6 megawatts uh and then following that right behind it solar two for 4.8 megawatts and working with the town and working with the sisters at the Abbey, they developed a plan whereby all of the town buildings would be supported by green energy. And uh, by the way, we've also seen the benefit of that as citizens mm -hmm. uh, in terms of how we buy our energy in Franklin. I have seen a approximately a 15% a reduction in the electric bill that our television and radio operation required when we started up uh, compared to today. So that's actually quite beneficial to us. There is a fifth solar farm in the works currently, a six megawatt operation on Spring Street. And I'm thinking that where we are currently, uh, Franklin is probably one of the towns that is poised fairly early in the game to become net positive with respect to our relationship with National Grid. Yeah, I think that we, you know, we're we're poised, and we've certainly got good leadership on the hill. So we're, I like being poised. I mean, it's yeah, just then. a thing, you know. <laughs> of course, people have never told me I'm poised, but poised. they've told me quite the opposite. <laughs> but poison, maybe, but they might have been mispronouncing it. I don't know. So I just thought it ended on a, you know, a stupid note. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, and 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 on the the poetic note, which was brought up a few times, I'm going to give you a little alliteration. Uh, another. Uh, very insightful, informative, and intellectually stimulating More Perfect Union Hour has flown by, and it has indeed. And we will have to say goodbye until next week. Now, if you would like to weigh in on our, this discussion or any of our discussions, we'd be glad to hear from you. And if you have any information that you would like to add to it, or if you disagree, all the more reason to get in touch with us. And we, you can email us at info at franklin.tv. That's I-N-F-O at franklin.tv. And again, if you enjoyed our discussion, let us know. Or again, more importantly, if you disagree, let us know. All the more reason to let us know. And you can share or listen to this program or any of our past episodes. Our 
podcasts are available online at our website, wfpr.fm. And for Ted McIntyre, our guest, thank you very much, Ted, for joining us. Thank and you for, for Dr. having me. Oh, my pleasure. Our pleasure indeed, believe me. And of course, Dr. Natalia Linos joining us late, but uh, still just a very welcome guest. And our representative, Jeff Roy, along with Peter J. I am Nick Remesong. Thanks for listening and joining our shared journey toward a more perfect union. This is Franklin Public Radio.